0: We are in a series talking about how your life matters and your life does matter. Your choices that you make matter. Your time matters. Your days on this earth matter. Your values matter. Your life really does matter. It matters here today and it matters in eternal significance. But we can think about that and think, yeah, my my life matters so my choices matter, my time matters, the things that I do matter and how I kind of decide to govern my life matters. We can think about it still in an individualistic way, but the truth is none of us is just the product of ourselves, of our choices, of our determination. We are the product of all the different voices around us as well. And this is true in many different ways, but I'll just give you a few examples. Maybe some of you have heard of uh, influencers, like social media influencers or influencer marketing, where people kind of place products next to themselves, and maybe some of you are influencers or you aspire to be an influencer, you only have 10 followers, but you know you will get there. And people pay you to wear a sweater or they pay you to hold their water bottle or their book or, or uh, whatever it is. And, and if you are an influencer, what that means is that because of kind of what you say and what you do or even just holding a product, that that changes the course of other people's lives, even just in their product choices, and here's just a few headlines that you can see how much this actually does make a difference. This is just a headline that says, meet the 28-year-old Instagram influencer who landed over 700,000 in brand deals within six months. Now, If that's true, that just shows you this really changes people's choices. It really does make a difference. Top 10 most expensive influencer athletes for brands, influencing the world, a digital event showcasing what's next. These were all just a few headlines from this week. And this just says it is set to be worth, influencer marketing is growing. It's set to be worth 15 billion by next year, by 2022. So that just shows you if if so much money is poured into this, It makes a difference. You're not, you don't just live the life that you live and make the choices that you make and buy the things that you buy just because of your own self-determination. You do it because of influencers. Whether we know it or not, we are influenced by the voices around us. This has been, maybe some of you have seen this in the news recently, but Facebook is kinda under fire for some reports uh, that have been coming out. I think they call them the Facebook Papers, which anything you add papers to just sounds ominous, right? Even if you just take your name, my name's Caleb, the Caleb Papers. If you saw that, you'd be like, oh, what is it about, right? It's nothing. It's just a piece of paper I took notes on. Um, But it says, "Here's this woman was a uh, data scientist for Facebook and is testifying in front of the Senate. Uh, And one of the things that she says is that Facebook harms children, sows division, and undermines democracy in pursuit of breakneck growth and astronomical profits. And I'm not going to tell you all the different things, but the point, again, is this. She worked for Facebook as a data scientist and is saying... Facebook is influencing us, whether we know it or not. Facebook changes the, the, way, that it, the way that children view themselves. This was actually a body image thing, and, uh, and, it, and it creates a political discord. It changes things, that we're not just the product of our own self. We are the product of the voices and the formative kind of things speaking into us that we are around all the time, whether we know it or not. Now, that's kind of negative, but positively speaking, you've had mentors in your life, right? You've had coaches in your life. You've had people that have maybe even the career choices that you made someone told you you're good at this or this is something I see in you and and we have had people in our life that have spoken things that have influenced us and our life though it matters deeply is not just our life but it's the product of so many voices that have spoken to us our parents teachers coaches mentors friends all sorts of different voices in our life a therapist people that That have spoken and changed our life. For bad and for good, we are shaped by other people. Oftentimes, we seek this out. Oftentimes, it's not just kind of by accident or Facebook or influencers. We seek this out. We say, I really want to learn more about money. Maybe that's with investing or just you're in debt or it could be all sorts of things. And so you seek someone out to help you. That could be someone you pay or it could just be a friend or it might just be your own research. You're reading blogs and uh, checking things out to figure out how you should invest your money or what's the best way to save or what should you do or how do you grow your wealth. That's true with your career. That you seek out mentors or people to speak into your career. Again, that might be in your job or it might just be that you seek things out. You read things. How to get a promotion or how to get ahead or what should I do? And you're inviting voices and mentors into your life proactively. That might be with your marriage or with your family. You read books and you say, I want to learn. I want to grow. I'm seeking mentors and voices to shape me. And what we are saying and doing with all of that is that in some way, we want others to guide us into the world that they have. If I'm here and I want to learn more about parenting or I want to learn more about finances or health, maybe it's a doctor. I am saying as I, as I seek out and talk to another person, take me into your world. Take me into the world of expertise or knowledge or wisdom. My world's here. I want you to bring me in some way into your world so I can experience what that is like financially, emotionally, relationally, careerly, whatever it is. I want you to take me into your world so I can experience that. Be my guide. Be my advisor that takes me into this world, takes me from where I am, into your world. That is what we seek out. Now, what if we can have that from God? What if, wherever you are right now, whatever situation, whatever trials you're facing, whatever challenges you're facing, whatever desires you have, what if God could more further bring us into His world? God is not just an expert at something, finances, career being a parent, God is God. He is over all and above all and knows all and is all-powerful and all-wise and all-loving. What if, wherever we are, God could move us more further into life experiencing what would it be like in his world, influenced by his wisdom, influenced by his love? What would it be like in our relationships if if God was able to more bring us into his world? What would it be like with our purpose in life and our choices and decision-making faculties and wisdom and what would it be like if God moved us more further into his world? Whatever it is that you're going through right now, what if you could more experience life led by him, influenced by him, changed by him, our choices, our relationship, our motions, all the different things, He is who we need to form us. Our life matters. Your life matters. But we're not just the product of ourselves. We're the product of all the different voices and influences happening at a conscious and subconscious level all the time. And you will be who the voices are shaping you, which is why sometimes we proactively seek those out. What if it could be God's voice that most shaped us and most changed us Whatever stage we are, whether that's in our suffering, whether we're younger or older, whether we're just kind of figuring career out or trying to figure out how to retire, wherever we are, we're just having kids or trying to figure out how to raise grandkids, whatever it is, what if God's voice was able to shape us and take us beyond where we are further into his world? The word for that is discipleship. The word for that in the Bible is discipleship. Which is that we submit ourselves under someone else and they lead us further than we are. We submit ourselves to a master and we learn from them. We are led by them. We are taken by them further than we currently are. To be led by, to learn from, to receive from. So, how can we receive what Jesus has for us? How can we be discipled by him? How can we move into his world from our world? We're going to read two different stories that Jesus gives to us that tells us the invitation to discipleship, what it looks like to participate in discipleship, and the motivation that helps us to become a disciple. So let's read this first story, and we'll look at the second one in a bit. Here's what he says. Jesus is at this meal, and we looked at the previous section of this a while ago, but Jesus is at this meal eating with people, and it says this. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he told him, this is Jesus speaking now, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married, and therefore I'm unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then, in anger, the master of the house told his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. This is the beginning where we see what the invitation to discipleship is. What is it that we are invited to? What is it when when we're talking about discipleship, what are we invited to? What is the invitation? And the first thing to notice is this. Everybody is invited. Everybody's invited. The first group of people invited really are the people that you would think would go. It's the religious leaders. Jesus is sitting at a banquet with religious leaders, with kind of the the upper class of society, the good people, the moral people, the religious people, the people that you would expect to be there. And they don't come, but they are invited. Jesus invites them. And then the servant goes out and invites more people. He invites those that you wouldn't think would come, those that you wouldn't normally invite to a banquet if you were someone that was wealthy and had the power and privilege to be able to have a banquet. You wouldn't normally invite the blind and the maimed and the poor, and yet they are invited. And then the hedges is even further beyond that. It's perhaps in this story representing those that are Gentiles, the non-Jewish people outside of God's family. Whatever it represents, particularly in the parable, it just means people even further. It is saying this. The invitation to discipleship is open to everybody. So whoever you are and whatever you're going through, you are invited into discipleship, into life with God, into life with Jesus, to learn from him, to know him, to experience life with him. He invites you. You are invited. Every single person is invited. It doesn't matter if you have found yourself suffering It doesn't matter if you have found yourself sinning. It doesn't matter if you have found yourself not the likely kind of person. Jesus says, you are invited. That's the first thing. But second, what is it that they are invited to? It's not that they're invited to a lesson to be more moral. It's not that they're invited to a lesson to be good people. It's not that they're invited into some sort of kind of religious program. The thing that they are invited to is a banquet. This is what the invitation to discipleship is. A parable is a short story that teaches deep, profound spiritual truth. And that really is what the invitation to discipleship is. It's an invitation to a banquet. Now, I don't know when the last time you went to a banquet was, but this is kind of what I think of when I think of a banquet. It's probably something from a wedding. This is beautiful, right? If you got married at a courthouse, then you're like, oh, that's what I didn't have. Yes, and you also saved $50,000. Uh, but this is what you could have had had you spent that money. <laughs> uh, but the invitation is to a banquet. And if you think about a banquet, what it, I mean, all the different things of what that represents. It represents joy. The invitation to discipleship is an invitation to joy. The invitation to a banquet is an invitation to, there's no people in this, but it's an invitation to relationship with God and with other people into a community. The invitation to a banquet, to, to discipleship, is community, it's relationship, it's joy, it's provision. Obviously, you're, you actually get a meal, you're eating. It is that you are provided for. It's, I love this, I, you know as a pastor, we host a lot of things in our home and, and we don't often uh, go to other things where we don't do any of the work. We, we don't often just get to show up we often are the ones that are doing the thing, hosting the class, hosting the, I'm officiating the wedding, doing things like that, right? And it's amazing though, when you get to show up to something and just sit in a chair, that's awesome. When you just get to show up at a banquet and just say, I have no responsibility. The one responsibility I have is this fork and this plate. That's it. I get to laugh, drink, and eat. That's that's my responsibilities. A banquet is you get to receive. You get to just receive. That's a beautiful thing, right? The invitation to discipleship is a banquet. Now, I know we don't probably think of Christianity a lot of times like that. A lot of times I ask people, what does it mean to be a Christian? And we have an idea of to be a Christian is to be like Jesus, it's to obey Jesus, it's to follow Jesus. Those are all true. But that's not in essence what it is. In essence, what it means is God is inviting you in to a banquet of joy, of relationship provision, of receiving freely that you don't even have to pay. This is what salvation is. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is not just what salvation is. It's what discipleship is. It's what life with Jesus is. It's an invitation to a banquet. Listen, I don't know where you are on the faith spectrum, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or you're just kind of checking things out or maybe coming back and checking things out. This is what he wants for you. This is what he is inviting you to. It's a banquet. And then finally, the invitation is not passive. It's not passive. It's not just this exists, and if you kind of stumble upon it, like what's all that commotion in there? Oh, it's a banquet. It's not a passive thing. He goes out and invites them. Look at all this language. Go out quickly and bring them in. Go out, make them come in. It's this very eager pursuit That God has to bring people in. The invitation to discipleship is not... Oh, I just gave something away. The invitation to discipleship is not this passive thing. But it's God going after us. It's God pursuing us. Which reminds me, you probably have not thought about this in a while, but (laughs) jingle all the way if you've ever seen this movie. It's about a father. It's about a father, two fathers, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sinbad. I don't think Sinbad has a last name, just Sinbad, Sinbad, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. If your name is Sinbad, you don't really need a last name, right? Um, and, and the whole story is about them trying to get this toy, Turbo Man, for their respective children. And now, all of us have probably at some point had something that we tried to purchase. And, and it was like, Amazon Prime, it's supposed to only take two days. It'll be there in April of next year. And you're like, no, that's not good. So you try Walmart, and you try this, and, you, maybe, and then we usually give up, right? But they made a whole movie about it to say this fa- these fathers love their children so much that they would go to the ends of the earth to give them this gift. And a whole movie is made of the trials and the tribulations and what they would do. And it involves bombs and it involves evil Santas and all sorts of things, right? I know now I'm just making you like, why am I here? I need to be watching Jingle All the Way. But all of this is they are saying, I will do whatever it takes to give them this gift. I will do whatever it takes to give them what I know is good for them, what I know would bless them, what I know would bring joy to them. I will do whatever it takes to give this to them. Now listen, that is, that's nothing compared to God's heart towards us. That's nothing compared to the pursuit that he has of us in inviting us to discipleship. Go out, find them, bring them in, make them come in. It is this pursuit that God wants you so desperately to have the banquet of his kingdom, the banquet of discipleship, the banquet of life with him that he pursues and goes after and spares no expense. This is true in your life if you're not a Christian, that God is pursuing you. And you might not even know why you're here today. You might not even know how you got here. God is pursuing you, inviting you to come into the banquet. But that's not just true becoming a Christian. It's true in our life all the time. For those that are in his family, God is constantly pursuing us, constantly calling us. I was talking to someone this week that said, man, I just was reminded again about how much God pursues me, goes after me, won't stop whether I'm in sin or whether I'm doubting something or not believing something. Whatever is happening in your life, God is pursuing you to bring you in to the banquet." of life with him, of joy with him, of relationship with him. God is pursuing. He knows our sin. He knows our pain. He knows our longing. He knows the experience of being on the outside and wants to bring you in to the banquet. So this is the invitation to discipleship. It's open to everybody to come to the banquet And not something passively that if you just happen upon it, he says, great, you found it. But something he eagerly pursues. Goes to the ends of the earth, literally, to pursue you and bring you in. That's the invitation to discipleship. What is the participation in discipleship then? Because maybe this sounds great, but not everyone experienced it. Not everyone had it. People didn't all come in to the banquet. And I want... To show you two things under the participation why people didn't come and then what it means to participate so why didn't these people come why didn't they come they had they had been invited and yet they didn't come and really these people that don't come represents those who have heard the invitation those that have even the way that invitations worked back then is similar to they work at a wedding today if you've been invited to a wedding at any point in your life, you um, you got a save the date usually, and then you got a which is kind of the first invitation, and then you get a second invitation that is the formal. Here you go. This is the one. Come now. That, I know that's not how everyone does it, but that's kind of the formal way to do it. Is there's a first invitation and a second invitation, and that's how it would happen in this day. A first invitation went out, and these people would have accepted it, and then the second invitation comes out, which says. It's ready, it's all ready, here you go, let's go. And that's the one they don't go to. So this represents people like us that have heard the invitation from God, that have even accepted it. At the point that Jesus is speaking, it represents those people that are sitting, listening to Jesus, hearing his teaching. They're drawn to him in some way. Jesus is eating a meal with Pharisees and religious leaders and other people and they're drawn to him in some way. They, they accept the invitation They want something of who he is, of of what God brings, and yet they don't go all the way in. They miss out. And why didn't they participate? It says they didn't participate because without exception, they all began to make excuses. They all began to make excuses. That's why they didn't enter in. That's why they didn't participate. That's why you and I could miss out on what God has for us is though we are invited, there might be excuses that come in the way. Now listen, this is so important because the excuses that they give, none of them are like, sorry, I would love to come to the banquet, but I really need to commit adultery today. I would really love to come to the banquet, but there's a body in the back of the trunk and I gotta bury it, so I'm gonna be busy for at least 20 minutes unless I can get a couple friends to help me. It's none of the the excuses is like that, right? It's all normal, good things. They say, I I can't come because I bought a field and I need to take care of it. I need to go look at it. I bought some oxen. I need to go tend to them. I, I just got married. None of it is bad stuff, right? But what gets in the way, what keeps them from participating in the banquet, what will keep us from participating in the banquet of discipleship, we are here. God is inviting us to experience life in his world, But what will keep us from that is even though at some point we've said, yeah, I'm interested in that. Yeah, I want that. What will keep us from fully entering in and experiencing is good excuses. That's what will keep us. Good excuses. Normal life. Jesus is calling you in some way. This is always how God works because he's always pursuing us, and he's always coming after us, and he never stops. That is how God is at work in your life right now. Jesus is calling you to experience more of life discipled by him. He is doing that. And I don't know the particular areas of where he's trying to lead you. I don't know the particular choices, changes, uh, direction, values. I don't don't know in your life, but I know Jesus is pursuing you. I know Jesus is calling you. I know Jesus is seeking to lead you. And what will keep you is excuses of good things. What will keep you from participating and enjoying and entering in is not this direct denial against God. I don't like you. I don't want you. I'm against you. But what will keep you is a greater desire that you have. You may have some desire for Jesus, but you also have a desire for this. You may have some desire to be taught and discipled, but you also have a desire for this. That is what will keep us from him. Think where he's asking to lead you right now. Think about where you have felt him pursuing you. That might be through a sermon. That might be through a friend's conversation. That might be just the internal conviction of the Holy Spirit. But think about where he is calling you, leading you. Things to stop, things to start, things to change. Mind shifts, heart shifts. Think about where he's leading you. And then think about all the, yeah, okay, but that you have had. It's probably not yeah, I really want to do that, but I have to kill someone, so I can't. It's probably oxen and fields and marriage and good stuff, right? The things that he's leading you to, you will miss out on because of good excuses. And the sad thing is, it feels right. Like those people, when, they, when the person came and invited them, they didn't, when he left, they didn't go, dang it. They said, great. I made a good choice. It feels right. One commentator speaking to this that I was reading this week said this, and I thought this was really helpful. It says, this is from um, Kent Hughes, and it says, Jesus offers the kingdom a perpetual feast of peace, a feast of help, guidance, friendship, rest, victory over self, control of passions, supremacy over circumstances, a feast of joy, tranquility, deathlessness, heaven opened, immeasurable hope, salvation. These are all the things that Jesus is offering. This is the world of where we are, of where he's leading us to, both current and eternal benefits. Yet people turn their backs on this feast, preferring a visit with their possessions and affections. See how sad that is to miss out on what the master discipler has for us because of our good excuses. This is why they didn't come. This is why they didn't participate. But then what does it mean to participate? This is why they didn't participate. But what does it mean to participate in discipleship? And this leads us to the second thing that Jesus says. I'll read all this and then we'll come back. To it. It says this. Now great crowds were traveling with him. So again, just look, all of these people that are interested, all of these people that have in some ways accepted the invite, but what does it mean to participate? So he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, While the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Participation in discipleship. We saw why people didn't come, but then what does it mean to participate? And really, in this section, what what Jesus is saying is this. He doesn't want us to be foolish. He doesn't want us to be fools. He doesn't want us to be like the person that starts a building project and then doesn't finish it. He doesn't want us to be like the king that is, has only 10,000 troops and then it's too late when he realizes the other person has 20,000 troops. He wants us to be able to build in our life and finish it. He wants for you to be able to experience peace and victory and not war and defeat. That's what he desires for us. He wants that for us. But what he says is this, if you want that, if you want to participate, you need to, he's he's not trying to have it in tiny little fine print at the bottom. He's saying up front, here's what it means to participate. I want you to count the cost so that you finish well, so that you experience what I have for you. I, I need you to count the cost. And understand that to participate in discipleship means to come to me with no conditions. It means to participate in discipleship means to come to me and there's nothing else that's going to get in the way. You have nothing that you say, well, yeah, but this or that. Sometimes I love some of the kind of movies, whether that's Karate Kid or... Uh, There's a, can't remember, I think it's called Warrior. It's a UFC uh, movie about two brothers. And and there's all these different movies that have something like this where there's some master and the person's training and trying to get good, but they can't totally do it. And the master says to them, okay, if you want, I will train you. I think Rocky does this also with Creed, uh, with the younger Creed. And he says, okay, I will train you, but here's the condition. You have to do whatever I tell you. You have to do whatever I say. If you want to get over here, there, you can't, there's, I'm, I'm God to you now. You must do whatever I say, and then I'll get you there. Then you will win. Then you will finish. Then you will go the distance. Then you will make it. But you have to do whatever I say. You have to let me be in total control. Jesus is saying, I need you to count the cost. You must come to me with no conditions, with nothing in the way, because anything you put in the way, will hinder you from actually getting to where I'm trying to take you to be. Any any condition that you make, any excuse that you make, any obstacle that you put there, you might think you're safeguarding yourself, but you are blocking yourself from actually getting to where I'm trying to lead you. So nothing can be in the way. He wants us to count the cost, and he says that there's three different threats that could keep us from where he is leading us, or three things he says, you cannot be my disciple if you don't allow me to rule you, if you don't allow me to lead you, if you let this get in the way, you cannot, he emphasizes that three times, you cannot be my disciple if you let this get in the way. Here's the three things. The first is family. He says we must hate our own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even your own life, that Jesus must take precedent over any relationship that we have. Now, listen, if you read this and just kind of nod along and go, yep, yep, then you're not feeling the weight of that. Like, that's a crazy statement, right? If I said that, you know, at the beginning, Dion gave announcements and said, hey, we, we'd love to give you a gift. Just fill out this Connect card. If he said, yeah, we'd love to give you a gift. Just hate your father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, and your own life. And then we'd love to do this for you. That you would go, this is whack, right? You wouldn't stick around for that. We just ask you to fill out a Connect card, a phone, a phone number. This is, this is crazy, right? I mean, it's, it, we should feel the force of that, of what he is saying. But he says, if not, we can't be his disciple. Now the way he, he, obviously Jesus over and over again tells us that we're supposed to love our neighbors ourselves and that we're supposed to love even our enemies. So there's tons of teaching on our love, but this is a idiom or a way of speaking kind of like metaphor to say that the love for him should be so strong in comparison that even this would look like hate. It's about our devotion. It's about our priority. It's about what our life actually revolves around. And naturally, our life often does revolve around our relationships. Often our life revolves around brothers and sisters and wife and children and father and mother. Oftentimes our life revolves around those things, the choices that we make, the life that we're building, the money that we're spending, the time that we're using. Oftentimes it revolves around this, right? Now, if you're a Christian, you've probably heard this phrase before. If you're a Christian, you've probably heard and, or know that Jesus says that language. But, but let me ask you this. What would look different in your life if all of a sudden God was moved to second? What would look different if you're saying, yeah, I, of course I agree, yep, yep, yep. Okay, so then what would look different if tomorrow you said, nope, no more. From now on, God is going to move to second. Would life look much different? Because I think a lot of times we can, we can hear what Jesus says and go, yeah, 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 of okay. course, that's kind of a crazy saying, but yep, of course, I'm a Christian, yeah. And, and really, though, does our life actually look like that? Would anything change if, if we said, no, on that one, Jesus, I'm not going to do that? Would anything actually change? Jesus is saying a profoundly controversial confronting statement to us that says, you must love me more than any other person that you value and is important to you so dearly. You must love me so much more than them that it actually looks like, feels like hate in comparison. That's how much you must love me. What that would look like is all sorts of things, but a few different examples is that oftentimes if you think about with our parents, uh, even as adults, when you relate to your parents, there can be pressure to conform to their desires, pressure to conform to what they want, and it might be in contradiction to your faith. It might be in contradiction to the values and the life of faith that you are trying to live, but you don't want to offend them. Or sometimes for parents that are raising their kids, it can be easy to have life with our kids just be about, I just want to make them happy. I just want them to be successful. I just want them to be even just good people. I just want to have fun. I just want to make memories, but not, I want to disciple them. I want to help them know Jesus I want him to actually be what's most important in their life, even more than me. And so how much energy and time am I putting into their faith versus just their education? How much time am I putting into their faith versus just them uh, getting ahead in school or being well-rounded and exploring all sorts of different activities? How much time am I putting into their faith when that's what we're actually called to as parents? And yet, so often we might spend tons of energy and time and commuting and dollars on sports and music and all sorts of other activities and things, and we don't have time for discipleship. So many activities. For those that are married, or this relates to families as well, it's really easy to just become inward-focused and say, I just love my family, I love my wife, I love my husband, I love my kids, and it's just us. And not think about all the other things that Jesus calls us to that might be hard, that might push us out of our own comfort in our own circle in our own home in our own immediate family. And Jesus is saying, can't be my disciple. If those loves are the main loves, you can't be my disciple. If those things are the main source of your joy, if those things, listen, what Jesus is saying is this, I want you to come to me. I want you to come to me and that love you feel and that commitment you feel and that intimacy you feel and that prioritization you feel and that, and that even just kind of protectiveness you feel about those close relationships, he's saying, I want you to come to me and experience in me a greater love I want you to come to me and experience in me a greater approval and a greater intimacy. I want you to come to me and experience what all of those relationships are intended to point to. I want you to come to me and experience from me all of that so much more that by comparison, those loves are looking like hate. Not because you hate them, but because when Jesus is at the center Those things have their proper orbit around him and they're about him and they're actually for him, which doesn't actually lower your love for them. It gives it a better love and a truer love and what love actually is, which is for someone's greatest good, which if Jesus is at the center, gives you true love for all of those other relationships around you. Jesus is inviting us to participate in discipleship and says that our family relationships, our spousal relationships, those close relationships can get in the way because our allegiance and our loyalty is found in them often. And he says, I want to give you something better, which, listen, this is good news for those of you that maybe are lonely. This is good news for those of you that maybe are far away from your your family. Most of our family's in Seattle. Seattle. This is good news for those of you that are divorced or have gone through that pain and don't have a spouse or long, maybe you're single and long for a spouse or those of you that don't even have kids or want kids or have broken. This is actually good news because he's saying, those aren't ultimate. Those aren't ultimate. I want to give you something even better than that. A greater love, a greater joy. That's what he's inviting us to when he invites us to participate in discipleship. The second thing is he tells us that we must bear our cross and come after him. Whoever does not do this cannot be my disciple. This is very different from oftentimes how we think about life and even oftentimes how we think about Christianity. This is not self-fulfillment. This is not just do what makes you happy. This is not, I know this is right because God wants me to be happy. And how could God not want me to be happy? So therefore, I'll do this. This is not No one has the right to tell me how to live my life. This is not just that God offers you a life free of any pain and any suffering. It's not any of that. It's death. And the cross is a religious symbol for Christians. But 2,000 years ago, it wasn't a symbol of anything. It was a real object of murder and torture and execution. It was the worst thing imaginable. It would be not even close to this because this isn't even as torturous and as barbaric. But if our slogan on our website was, become a Christian, it's like getting shot in the head. That is not very attractive. This is worse than that. And that's what he's saying. That's his sales pitch. Right? That doesn't sound very appealing. If you're trying to sell a product, you don't try to make it sound like torture. Jesus never went to marketing school. And he says, this is what Christianity is. And if you can't be executed and tortured and come after me, you can't be my disciple. Life with Jesus is a life where we often suffer for him. If we are following him, we will suffer with him. We will suffer for him. Jesus invites us into a life beyond ourself, but that's a life going where he went. Are you suffering for Jesus? That might mean in your relationships and in your work that you, you speak up, you talk about your faith, you, you're bold. You make ethical choices that other people don't make and it might actually cost you something. I know one person in our church said I couldn't work at this company anymore because the choices that they were making were unethical and it was making more money, but it was causing, it it was taking money from people wrongly and dishonestly, and I couldn't do that anymore. So they left that job. Thankfully, they found another job, but they might have gone without. But it's a choice to say, I'm willing to suffer for Jesus. I'm willing to suffer because of my belief in him, because of my life following him. Is that true? Are you willingly taking that upon yourself? Or when that comes, you're like, oh, no, 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 no. I can't do that. And God wants me to be happy, so he wouldn't want me to do that. Are you sacrificing for Jesus? The cross is suffering in its sacrifice. Are you sacrificing in your obedience, in your serving? Or when your faith confronts a sacrifice that you would have to make, again, you feel like, ah, there's a line. I'll sacrifice for this, but not this. There's a line. The cross says there's no line. The cross says torture and murderous death is the line. And none of us in this room have experienced torture and murderous death because we're here. So the line is, is that And yet so often when there's a sacrifice with our time or our money or our energy or anything like that, we go, ah, that can't be what God has for me. I remember talking to someone once that said, yeah, I know that this was the right course of action to take because it's gone so easy now. Well, maybe. Sometimes when God blesses us and opens up a door, yes, it it goes well and he clears the path. But that's not true of what happened with Jesus He knew it was the right thing to do because God told him to do it and it was the path of the cross. It was the path of sacrifice and suffering. Jesus is saying this though. When he invites us to come with him, he's saying, come with me. Even though this sounds scary, even though it's suffering and sacrifice and the cross, he's saying, come with me and experience a life that isn't about yourself. Come with me and experience a life that's not you. At the center. That's scary, but if we really think about it, it's liberating to say a life without me at the center, a life where I don't have to totally protect my life and guard my life and be scared of suffering and be scared of sacrifice and always trying to guard and always a life where He's inviting us to say, to be discipled by me is self is no longer at the center. That's a deep, Freedom that he actually brings to us. Come, listen, a lot of times in life, people that have found something bigger than themselves will say, It's worth anything. It's worth sacrificing for. It's worth dying for. Sometimes you hear that from people that um, are in the military and love their country. Sometimes it's with parents and their kids. And sometimes it's, I mean, there's all these different types where people say, This was bigger than myself and I was willing to give everything for it. And those people are filled with joy. The people that, are, that have found something bigger than themselves worth dying for and worth sacrificing for and worth suffering for, they're not miserable. They have found the secret to unlocking I'm not at the center anymore. And Jesus is inviting us into life with him at the center. Something that is worth dying for. Something bigger than us. And then the final way he tells us to participate that we cannot be his disciple without is he says that Every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, that's not to say that you have to get rid of all your possessions. That's not to say that everyone must totally empty their bank accounts and walk around naked. No clothes, no money, just you must renounce everything. That's not uh, what we're talking about this Sunday. Next Sunday, when we officially become a cult, I will announce that. Um, not really. Um, We'd love to see you back next Sunday. Maybe just your curiosity will bring you back. We'll see. That's not what it means, but it does mean this. To renounce is a heart posture that says, it's not mine. It isn't mine anymore. Have you renounced your possessions? Jesus says, if you have not renounced, and that's a strong word, right? All these strong, strong language. None of this is kind of like, yeah, yeah, a little bit. I come to church on Sunday. That's not what any of this is what he's saying. Have you renounced your possessions? Which is to say, none of this is mine. None of it belongs to me. It's all yours. Therefore, it's all for you. It's all from you, so it's all for you, and it's not mine. It doesn't belong to me, which means I can be free with it. It means I can be generous with it. It means I, I don't have to clutch onto it and hold onto it and be anxious about it. And be, Listen, the degree of anxiety in your life over your stuff is the degree that you haven't renounced it. The degree over fear over your financial situation is the degree that you haven't renounced it. Because when you say, it's not mine, then who cares? It can can flow freely through you. And you're not as worried about it because it's not yours. You've renounced it. When we renounce it, we're free, actually. What are you holding on to when it comes to possessions, when it comes to your stuff, when it comes to your desires for possessions and desires for stuff? What are you holding on to Jesus says, we must renounce. And we always renounce something when something else is worth more to us. Right? Anytime you go out to eat, you're renouncing, though. and I know we don't really carry around cash anymore, but you're renouncing those dollar bills for that bacon cheeseburger, right? You're getting rid of this stuff because something else is worth more to you. You're renouncing more than some dollar bills For a house, you're renouncing this, dollar bills, for a vacation, for a ski pass, for a new pair of hiking boots, whatever it is, right? For that new beer that just got put out, limited edition, whatever, right? You're renouncing this, I'm trying to hit every group, those of you that drink and hike, right? Which is basically Colorado, so I'm trying to get all of you. We're renouncing this for something that's worth more. We always do that, all the time. Or for some of you um, that are maybe getting engaged or recently engaged, or you remember back to that day, uh, you renounce money for an engagement ring. The greater the like there's bacon cheeseburger, and then there's, I'm going to renounce a lot of money so I can give a ring. So I can put a ring on it. So I can obey Beyonce. I'm going to renounce this so that I can have this. Because it's worth it, right? A relationship, a wedding, a marriage is worth it. The word, yes, it's worth it, right? And if it's really worth it, when I was Google Imaging engagement rings, this came up. But not to make you feel sad, so we'll go back to this. But the more that it's worth it, the more you're willing to sacrifice. The more, that it's, the more you see the worth, the more you're willing to renounce. And so when Jesus says, renounce everything, all of it, not just a little bit for a bacon cheeseburger, Not just a lot for a house or a ring, renounce all of it. What he is saying is, because I'm worth all of it. I'm giving you something even better. He's not actually calling us to give anything up. He's calling us to grab onto the greatest treasure. He's calling us to actually enter into what is better than anything. You bite into that cheeseburger and say, yeah, that was worth it. That was worth those 10 bucks or whatever. Or you say, ah, man, I have a marriage now. It was worth buying that ring. I have a house. It was worth it. And Jesus says, give up, renounce all of it. I'm worth all of it. I'm the best thing that you could ever have. This is what participation in discipleship is. The reason people didn't do it was excuses. What it means, what it looks like, is to see essentially Jesus as better than family, than suffering than our possessions. And without this, without this, the very last thing Jesus says is this. Now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. That's the last thing he says, which says this. Without without actually entering into discipleship and participating in these ways, it's useless. See, your life matters. And your discipleship with Jesus matters. And the life that he wants to bring us into matters. But a life of discipleship without actually seeing Jesus as better and more important and revolving around is useless. It's like, it's like salt without saltiness. I don't know if you've ever had a food that wasn't salted. We have a, a restaurant that we really like, and they make this homemade sausage, and it's amazing. And one time we went in, and we're like, all right, I can't wait. We're gonna, The whole reason we go there is for the sausage. It's like, all right, we're going there, the sausage. And we get there, eat this, order the sausage, eat the sausage. And we're like, did they change the recipe? What's wrong with this? And spoke to the chef. I hate doing that. I was like, uh, you know, not the chef, but the waiter. And, said, and he's like, no, no, it's fine. Then he spoke to the chef and came back and was like, ah, actually, someone forgot to put the salt in. It's like, that's why. So the whole batch of sausage was useless. And I wrote this verse on the, on the tab. No, and, no, I'm just kidding. Um, they gave us a free meal, which was great. Um, but it, the, the point he's saying is it's useless. None of us want to be a, a saltless sausage. I can put that on a t-shirt. What did you learn in church today? You know? None of us want that. And he is saying this, listen, your life, salt gives value to everything. Your life, your life, your discipleship, it can be like salt. And salt back then had so many different functions. It was a preservative. Your life can preserve things. Your life can enhance things and make things better. The relationships around you, your neighborhood, your job. Your life can be salt, can make things better. It can preserve it. It can grow, help things to grow and foster. Salt was used as a a fertilizer. It can do all of this stuff. But it can also be useless if we say we're following Jesus, we say we're being discipled by Jesus, and yet we keep letting things get in the way. We keep making excuses. We keep, and that's not what he wants for us. That's not what he wants us to experience. And I don't know what your life feels like. Maybe you look at your life and go, it doesn't feel very purposeful. It doesn't feel very meaningful. It doesn't feel very salty. Things around me aren't growing. Relationships aren't thriving. Things, maybe it feels like that. And maybe you've lost your saltiness. And he says, let those who have ears to hear listen. Which is to say, okay, you've heard this. Now come, participate with me. Final thing is this. The motivation of discipleship. Because everything that I've just said can be difficult. It's not easy. There can be fear in us. It's a radical shift to think about the prioritization over all these different things. So what can help us? And it's these two little words that Jesus says when he he calls us to bear our own cross. But then he says, come after me. See, when we remember that everything that Jesus is calling us to is something he's already done for us, That changes our perspective. That builds a trust in him. He tells us not to let family be first. And you know what? Jesus did that for us. Jesus had a family. He had brothers. He had his mom, Mary, and even perfect community in the Trinity. And he left for us. And Jesus renounced everything he had. Philippians 2 tells us that he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. And he gave up all that he had, all the glory, all the wealth, all the riches, all the comfort, gave it all up, became a little baby. Why? For us. And Jesus went to the cross, suffering, sacrificing to forgive us of our sins, to bring us into the banquet. And he says, here's your motivation. Come after me, which means I've already gone there. I'm over here now saying, come on. I'm over here now saying, you can trust me. I'm over here now saying, I've already lived that life and I know how to help you. I'm over here saying, I've already done this for you. I'm not asking you to do anything, give up anything. I've got it all. And I'm saying, come with me. You see, when we understand that discipleship is a coming after him, we know, I can trust him. He's already been there. I can trust him. He did this for me. I can trust him. This gives us the motivation that we need to see him, to receive from him the banquet. Remember, it's not, it's not just discipleship. The call to discipleship isn't, isn't just this call to be good or be like him. It's a call to experience life with him in all of its joy and fullness. And it's free to us. But it wasn't free to him. A banquet always costs money. Those of you that are older in the room and have paid for weddings for your children, you say amen, right? A banquet always costs money. A banquet always costs money. And Jesus paid the ultimate cost to bring us in. His very blood broke, his his body broken, his blood shed, which is what we remember when we take communion in just a moment. He paid the cost for us to bring us in to life with him, to enter into his world. We are shaped by the various voices in our life? What if we could be shaped by his voice, discipled by him, enter into his world? What if we could have that more? How do we get that? Jesus says we get it by receiving his invitation to be totally shaped by him, totally centered on him with nothing in the way. Imagine that. A life given over to him, mastered by him, experiencing his world. That's what he wants for us. That's the banquet that he invites us to. And so as you take communion, as we take the communion together, if you didn't get a little cup on your way in there at the front, you can grab those. Communion is something that Christians do to remember the full cost that he paid to bring us into the banquet. As you take that communion, just pray. I want, I want to invite you to pray and ask God to forgive you where you have made the excuses. Ask God to forgive you where you have let other things, family and possessions and, and other kind of just privileges get in the way of coming to him. Confess and, and then thank him for his gift. Thank him for his desire for us to give us a banquet. Thank him for his salvation and the cost that he paid Thank him and remember all done for us to experience this discipleship. Ask him to help you see, to help you trust. I'm going to pray and then we'll invite you to just take some time in your seat to pray. Then we'll respond and singing some songs. I'll also be in the back and would love to pray for anybody that would like prayer for healing or for any of the things that we've talked about today. Father, I thank you that you call us into life with you. That you invite us to the banquet, whoever we are, whether we find ourselves as the religious elite in the story or the total outcast in the story. You, You want us, God, and you pursue us. And so I thank you for that truth and pray that even as we take communion now, you would impress upon our hearts the beautiful gift that you've given to us and the amazing price that you paid for us to have it. In your name, Jesus, we pray, amen.